Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. The town was nearly 700 years old, another foundation of Seleucus I, and named after the original Chalcis in Greek Euboea. The Syrian river that gave it life was called the Belus, named for the Semitic god Bel or Baal, so the name in Roman times became Chalcis Sublibanum. At least until the emperor Domitian renamed the city in honor of his dynasty and it gained the somewhat cumbersome name of Flavia of the Chalcedonies. By the late 4th century, the people who called Chalcis home were not, for the most part, Seleucid or Roman, but a powerful Arab tribe called the Tanuk. As I covered near the end of the Bloodline series, it was the Tanuk who teamed up with the Roman Emperor Aurelian to put an end to Queen Zenobia. In fact, I didn't really get into it, but according to Al-Tabari, the whole conflict with Queen Zenobia was purely an Arab affair. A Tanuk leader named Jadima killed Zenobia's father, Zenobia had killed Jadima in revenge, then Zenobia was killed by Jadima's nephew, Amr bin Adi. In Altabari's version, a trapped Zenobia sucks on a poison seal ring right before she's struck down with a sword. So add that to all of Zenobia's possible fates. After Zenobia's death, the Tanuk took on Palmyra's role as Eastern Desert Shield. According to historian Warwick Ball, the Roman arrangement with such allied tribes, or federati, consisted of one tribal confederation whose sheikh would be recognized by the Romans as phylarch or king, being given subsidies by the Romans to defend the frontier, both against the Iranians and against raids by non-allied tribes. More specifically, their job was to contribute highly mobile professional cavalry units to the Roman army in exchange for Roman gold. 
Now, this was the northern branch of the Tanuk, who were based in the region around Aleppo in Syria. There was also a southern branch, known as the Lachmids, who'd settled in Mesopotamia. And just like the northern branch had allied themselves with Rome, the southern branch had cozied up with their imperial neighbor, Sasanian Persia. Or at least for a while they'd tried to. During the reign of King Shapur, a Lachmid noble named Imru al-Qais had been appointed as governor over the desert fringes. Over the next few decades, Imru al-Qais had kept the rule under the next seven Persian kings, with his personal power and reputation growing all the while. Right up until 325 AD and the ascension of Shapur II. Now, Shapur II had been born about a month after his father's death. Or, to be more accurate, about a month after his father's murder by the Persian nobility. Anyway, it was many long years before he was old enough to rule, leaving the empire without firm leadership. As Al-Tabari records, the viziers and secretaries retained the official functions they had held during his father's reign. But the rumor spread that the people had no king, and the Persians were merely waiting for a child. Hence, the Romans cast envious eyes on the lands of the Persians. The Romans, sure, but the immediate problem was the Arabs of the Persian Gulf, who targeted the weakened empire for frequent raids. Al-Tabari notes that this continued until Shapur II grew up and became stirred to action. At last he reached 16 years of age and was able to bear weapons and ride cavalry horses, and his physical strength became great. For his first campaign, Shapur selected 1,000 cavalrymen from among the stoutest and most heroic of the troops. Then he led them forth and fell upon those Arabs who had treated Persia as their pasture ground, wrought great slaughter among them, reduced others of them to the harshest form of captivity, and put the remainder to flight. After a successful campaign in the Persian Gulf, Shapur moved on into northern Arabia, where he made general slaughter like that of the previous occasion. He did not pass by any of the Arab springs of water without blocking them up, nor any of their cisterns without filling them in. Shapur kept on pressing further south, eventually going as far as Medina, with the goal of forcing Arab tribes away from the Persian frontier. After the slaughter, enslavement, and deportation, he installed local Sasanian garrisons to reinforce control. In memory of Shapur's cruelty, the Arabs called him Du al-Aktaf, he who pierces shoulders. And one of the tribes who suffered that cruelty just happened to be the Lakhmids. Like I mentioned, the Lakhmids and their leader Imru al-Qais had been staunch Persian allies for decades. So it was likely a wrong-place-wrong-time thing more than anything personal. On the other hand, Imru al-Qais had recently converted to Christianity and also had a habit of sheltering manichees. 
neither of which put him in good graces with the Persian Zoroastrian establishment. Either way, he decided to take the hint. In the wake of the campaign, Imru al-Qais led his people from Mesopotamia to join their Tanuk cousins up in Chalcis. So, in one bold stroke, or major Persian miscalculation, both Tanuk branches were reunited and firmly allied with Rome. Imru al-Qais was soon accepted as king over the whole Syrian Tanuk confederation, and Rome could leverage his power and prestige to exert influence deep into Arabia. Not a bad deal for the current emperor, a guy named, let's see here, Constantine the Great, who, by the way, took the title Arabicus in acknowledgement of his coup. And again, since Imru al-Qais had recently converted to Christianity, with many of his people likely following him, the Roman center and desert fringes were on the same liturgical page. Which remained the case until, cue the discordant note, the reign of Julian the Apostate. For those who don't recall him, he was the last of the Constantinian line who hadn't already been killed by his relatives. And he decided that what Rome really needed to get back on top was a return to traditional religion, which meant getting rid of Christianity. Now, while paganism might still fly out west, the Arabs of the late 4th century were staunchly Christian and had no interest in supporting an emperor who was turning back the clock. When Julian came out east to fight the Persians in 363, there's a decent chance that his Arab allies took the opportunity to express their views in a frank and open exchange. Warwick Ball notes that the spear thrust into Julian's side on campaign may have come from one of his Arab auxiliaries. At least that was the rumor going around, and Julian, quickly being dead, was unable to confirm or deny. After his death, the empire returned to unmitigated Christianity. But relations with the Tanuk became a bit more problematic. Their possible killing of a Roman emperor wasn't great for public relations, but even worse, after the elevation of the Emperor Valentinian I and his brother Valens in 364, the Tanuks learned that they were the wrong kind of Christian. Full disclosure, one reason I was happy to wrap up Bloodline before the Roman Empire became Christian is that all these eye-dotting, T-crossing religious disputes genuinely bore me to tears. So I'll just say that the brother emperors Valentinian and Valen subscribed to Arianism, the doctrine espoused by Arian of Alexandria, that said Jesus was begotten by God and was therefore a distinct and subordinate being, but still the Son of God. Meanwhile, the Arabs believed in the previous monophysite orthodoxy that held that Jesus and God were the same being. Potato, potato, but at the time, this was deadly serious business. The crisis came in 375, when the latest Tanuk king, Al-Hawari, died with no successor. 
The co-emperor Valens, who'd been ruling the East for around 11 years, took the opportunity to redefine Rome's relationship with the Tanuk. First, he revoked their Treaty of Alliance, supposedly due to the whole murdering Julian thing. And second, he decided to impose an Arian bishop on the monophysite Arabs. With their king dead, Valens felt they had little choice but to toe the Roman line. Au contraire, mon frère, because someone isn't up to speed on the history of Arab warrior queens stepping up in times of crisis. Enter Mawia, or Mavia, the wife of King Al-Hawari and queen of the Tanuk. Unlike the earlier queen Zenobia, we don't have much good information on her background, her character, or even her appearance. But the important thing, then and now, is the decision she made next. In response to Valens's provocations, she led her people away from settled life in Chalcis and the surrounding region, and back into the eastern and southern deserts. Other tribes soon rallied to her cause, in opposition to Rome. And for anyone thinking, oh great, another brilliant local flare-up crushed by the power of Rome, hold on for a bit, because this story goes a bit differently. According to Ball, Queen Mavia started off her campaign by striking hard at vulnerable Roman positions. Sozaman reports that Mavia led her troops into Phoenicia and Palestine, as far as the region of Sinai in Egypt. Another contemporary source, Rufinus, relates that Mavia, queen of the Saracens, had begun to convulse the villages and towns on the border of Palestine and Arabia with a violent war, and to ravage the neighboring provinces. He also reports that she had worn down the Roman army in several battles, and had felled a great many. And Scholasticus claims that all the regions of the East were, at that time, ravaged by the Saracens. One glaring advantage Mavia had, and one that Queen Zenobia lacked, was that she had no home base to attack in retaliation. Chalcis had been a convenient enough place for the Tanuk to set up camp for a while, but when push came to shove, they had very little problem returning to life in the desert. Sozaman describes the critical battle. He says that the Romans considered the revolt so arduous and so perilous that the general of the Phoenician troops applied for assistance to the general of the entire cavalry and infantry of the east. This latter ridiculed the summons and undertook to give battle alone. So, to interject, we're talking about two guys here. The Roman general in charge of the legion stationed in Syria Phoenice and Syria Palestina, and someone who's basically the ducks of the east, overseeing all eastern territories. To continue, the ducks accordingly attacked Mavia, who commanded her own troops in person, and he was rescued with difficulty by the general of the troops of Palestine and Phoenicia. 
Perceiving the extremity of the danger, this general deemed it unnecessary to obey the orders he had received to keep himself aloof from the combat. He therefore rushed upon the barbarians, and furnished his superior an opportunity for safe retreat, while he himself yielded ground and shot at those who fled and beat off with his arrows the enemies who were pressing on him. Sozomen notes that the heroic action of the Roman general is still held in remembrance among the people of the country, and is celebrated in songs by the Saracens. But it didn't really change the outcome, which was another lopsided crushing defeat at the hands of the Tanuk queen Mavia. Unlike Zenobia, who began by inheriting a vast domain only to see it reduced to a single city, Mavia had leveraged her local base into control over much of the east. And another main difference, Mavia's ultimate Roman opponent lacked the luck and skill of Aurelian. By 377, the Roman co-emperor Valens was seriously on the ropes. Two years earlier, his elder brother Valentinian I had died in possibly my favorite imperial death, bursting a blood vessel while yelling at German envoys. Valentinian's sons, Gratian and Valentinian II, had taken up their father's role, but still, things were never quite the same. Then, in 376, the Visigoths, under their leader Fritigern, had advanced to the banks of the lower Danube, requesting Roman asylum. Valens had put Fritigern on the guest list, along with a few hundred of his closest friends, but an enormous population of Goths was fleeing invasions by the Huns and Alans, and hundreds of thousands took the opportunity to surge across the Danube. The Romans couldn't prevent the move, and made a tricky situation worse by extorting the desperate refugees and making them even more desperate. In 377, the same year as Queen Mavia's string of victories, the Goths had gone into open revolt and were ravaging the Thracian countryside. Roman troops under the generals Trajan, Ricimer, Saturninus, and Sebastian were just barely managing to hold the line, but the situation demanded Valens's attention. So, Queen Mavia, what do you want? No, I mean literally, what do you want? Because things being as they were, Valens was pretty much down on his knees. And Mavia who had yet to suffer a single defeat, was happy to dictate terms. First, let's get that treaty back in place and get the money flowing again. Second, Mavia demanded to have her daughter, the Tanuk princess Chazadat, be married to Valens's master of horse, a former consul named Victor, who also happened to be a zealous monophysite. And, speaking of that, Mavia demanded the right to name the Roman bishop appointed over the Arabs. Valens's responses, unsurprisingly, were yes, yes, and yes. The bishop she chose was 
also unsurprisingly, another zealous monophysite by the name of Moses. Scholasticus describes him as a Saracen by birth, who led a monastic life in the deserts of Egypt and became exceedingly eminent for his piety, faith, and miracles. In what sounds like a pretty awkward start, Moses was accordingly seized and brought from the desert to Alexandria in order to be initiated into the sacerdotal functions. But there was a problem. Moses refused to be ordained by Lucius, the Roman bishop of Alexandria, because of his reputation for brutality. And I'll just quote Moses railing on Lucius because it's some pretty righteous stuff. Your infamous practices against the brethren sufficiently prove the inconsistency of your doctrines with Christian truth. A Christian is no striker, reviles not, does not fight. For it becomes not a servant of the Lord to fight. But your deeds cry out against you by those who have been sent into exile, who have been exposed to the wild beasts, and who have been delivered up to the flames. Leaving Lucius fuming, Moses went off with a group of friends to the nearby mountains that he might receive ordination from the bishops who lived in exile there. And I think I see what Mavia liked in this guy. Ball notes that once Moses was installed as the first Arab bishop over the Arab tribes, Many leading Tanuk figures were attracted from Mesopotamia to settle in the Roman Empire. And in fact, an incipient Arab church seemed to be in the making. But that was more of a long-term project. The matter requiring urgent attention was much more temporal. With their formal alliance back in place, Valens requested Tanuk support for his coming war with the Goths. Having given her word, Queen Mavia provided the emperor with Arab-Roman auxiliaries. In 378, Valens and his army marched out from Antioch toward Constantinople. With them were Queen Mavia's Tanuk auxiliary, as well as Mavia's new son-in-law, the Roman master of horse, Victor. And just to touch on Victor for a moment, he was actually retracing his former steps. Because before Valens, Victor had also served under the Roman emperors Jovian, Julian, and Constantius II. And under Julian, in 362, he'd marched Roman troops from Constantinople to Antioch for Julian's Persian campaign. Victor acquitted himself well in the conflict, making it all the way to the walls of Ctesiphon before taking an arrow in the shoulder. Under Valens, he'd become the go-to guy to get things done in the east, and had previously led high-level embassies to both the Sasanians and the Goths. In Constantinople, all of Valens's counselors and generals, including Ricimer, Frigerid, and Victor himself, advised the emperor to wait for his nephew, Gratian, to arrive from Gaul before they attacked the Goths. On the other hand, once his army had arrived, the citizens of Constantinople were all like, 
Hey Valens, you invited the Goths into Thrace in the first place, so maybe go and clean up your mess. Which seems to have been the argument that carried the day. So Valens marched off to the famous Battle of Adrianople. And it was indeed a slaughter. To cut to the chase, at the end of the day, two-thirds of the Eastern Roman army lay dead including many of their best officers and, most importantly, their emperor. Essentially, Valens rode out into an army of Goths and was never seen again. After unsuccessfully trying to rescue him, his master of horse, Victor, along with the general Ricimer, managed to withdraw their troops intact and carry news of their total defeat to the western emperor, Gratian. Meanwhile, Queen Mavia dispatched more Tanuk troops to defend Constantinople. And, according to Ammianus Marcellinus, Mavia's cavalry proved critical in defending the city from invading Goths, who were eventually driven off. Following the conflict, the surviving Tanuk returned to their queen in Syria. Meanwhile, out west, the surviving Roman emperor Gratian elevated a general named Theodosius to take command of the Illyrian army, a position he quickly leveraged into becoming emperor of the east. Recruiting Goths to fight the Goths, Theodosius met with moderate success and was finally able to wind down the conflict on fairly generous terms. Mavia's son-in-law, Victor, eventually retired from military life and settled down in Constantinople with Mavia's daughter, Chazadat. A few years later, Theodosius also decided to revoke the treaty with the Tanuk. The reason this time may have been the death of the Sasanian king Shapur II in 379 and the decreased eastern threat level under his successors. Either way, stopping payments to the Federati led to a second Tanuk revolt in 383. The fact that Mavia isn't mentioned in the context of the second revolt suggests that she may have passed away, which also might explain the radically different outcome. Without Mavia's leadership, the second revolt was quickly put down, and the alliance permanently ended. Rome soon made arrangements with a different tribe, the Salihids, to be their regional proxy. So, that's the story of the Tanuk queen Mavia. And, due to the parallels, it's worth comparing to that of her famous predecessor, Queen Zenobia. We've already mentioned the differences in circumstances, differences of opponents, and disadvantages of relying on a city as one's ultimate source of power. In terms of a legacy, Zenobia's legend is far more famous, but it also collapses down, much like that of Spartacus, to a brilliant flash of independence quickly snuffed out by Rome. While less well-known, Mavia's legacy is arguably more concrete. As summarized by Warwick Ball, her revolt revealed, first, just how quickly the native populations of the Roman Near East would desert the Romans and join the Arab side in times of war. But far more importantly, 
It demonstrated just how effective a disciplined, well-armed, and highly mobile desert force of Bedouin cavalry could be against conventional Roman forces. A legacy that would find its natural conclusion in the centuries soon to come. 